Hi, everyone. Welcome to Herbal Wisdom. Thanks for joining for another episode. I'm Chris. I am the owner and program director of Herbal Wisdom Institute. I've been a clinical herbalist for oh, the past 10, almost 11 years. I'm also a director for a major herbal product manufacturer and brand. And I get a lot of questions on why alcohol is in herbal products and why the alcohol amounts are sometimes very high. So I wanted to address this today so that if you're new to taking herbal preparations, you have an understanding of the alcohol content, why it is there, and maybe what you can do um, to make sure that you're taking the right kind of product for your needs. And then if you're an herbalist and you're new to making plant medicines, this might be really helpful because I'm also going to talk about um, plant constituents and their solubility and what alcohol ratios you need for different kinds of plant chemicals that we're looking to extract. So we're going to talk about a few things. Why alcohol is in the tinctures, when to avoid alcohol-based products. We'll talk about alcohol levels in terms of shelf stability versus plant extraction because that requires different things. And then I'm going to give you a comparison of alcohol content in different plant extracts versus some common foods and beverages. And then I'll go into the chemistry portion. So the questions that I get are often about the high content of alcohol. Now, when I say high content, it will often be 40% alcohol and up. This is very common in plant extracts that we would call tinctures. Sometimes we would call it a liquid extract. For our purpose today, I'm going to call it tinctures. Um, So that can be kind of shocking when you pick up a bottle of a tincture It's your first time using it and you turn it around and you look at the label and you see that it says 65% alcohol. That can freak people out because when we're looking at, say, drinking a beer, that's anywhere from 5 to 8% alcohol. And if we're drinking a glass of wine, that's anywhere from 11 to 14% alcohol. So when we see 65%, that really weirds us out if we don't know why it's there, and exactly what does that 65% translate to. Now, while herbalists have been making herbal medicines with alcohol and water extractions for centuries, there are some people that probably should avoid taking any alcohol-based product. And so that would be... um, an individual maybe who has some compromised liver function already, um, and that could be from past alcohol abuse or drug abuse, or they're on a lot of pharmaceutical medications, or they have some chronic illnesses um, or liver disorders. Um, Or you might want to avoid alcohol-based tinctures if you're giving these to children Although most herbalists will tell you we feel it's very safe for children to take alcohol-based tinctures. And later in this podcast episode, I'll explain to you why. Um, But most of the time, they're very safe, although sometimes you might want to avoid. Or if you are um, 
you have a personal or religious uh, reason why you would not be consuming alcohol. So those are some reasons you would avoid alcohol-based tinctures. You can find plant products, plant tinctures that are extracted in glycerin in water instead of alcohol, but they're not as common. Not every plant does well in glycerin. So for our purpose today, we are mainly talking about alcohol-based tinctures. These are made by putting plant material into maceration or soaking with a mixture of alcohol and water. And we do this so that we can extract from the plant both the water-based compounds and the alcohol-based compounds. So this is different than if we were to make a tea. So making a tea, all we're getting from that plant are its water-based constituents. And that's great, but we sometimes, a lot of times, need more than what a tea can provide for us in order to, to get the actions that we're wanting within the body. So when we're looking at a product that is that has alcohol added to it in order to increase shelf stability because that's one of the things alcohol does, is it increases shelf life, um, then we're looking at anywhere from 23 to 30% alcohol total by volume. So, I mean, think about this. You make tea, like iced tea, okay? So you make tea and you put it in your refrigerator. It's really only good for about two days. Herbal teas, black tea, anything like that. It's really only good for up to about 48 hours. And then you can taste it when it starts to turn and you can smell it. It starts to sour a little bit because there's no shelf stability. Now, if we were to take that same tea and, and then add about 25% alcohol by volume to that tea, we could keep that tea for many months in the refrigerator. Now, it's not going to taste like tea, right? <laughs> because you're going to have the taste of the alcohol in there. But that's essentially what alcohol does is preserve that shelf life. Now, when we're looking at alcohol for plant extraction, that's different. So when we want to open a plant up in the extraction process and pull from it its medicinal compounds, its medicinal constituents, we will often need a higher amount of alcohol in order to do that, mixed with water. That way we're getting a good balance of the alcohol-soluble compounds and the water-soluble compounds. And so each plant is very unique in what the constituents are that we're trying to extract, the, what those compounds are that make that plant medicinal and make it beneficial for use in the body. So what I want to go through first are some basic comparisons on alcohol percentages that you find in tinctures, but also in some common foods and beverages so that we really just have an understanding and a comparison of how much are we really talking about, okay? So now let's start with tinctures a very common percentage of alcohol that you'll find is about 45%. And so most plants need about 45% alcohol to do their extraction. Now, when we 
equate this to drops or like yeah, drops within your dosage. Most people, when they're taking a tincture, they're taking one to two milliliters at a time. Now, if you've ever gotten that, gotten one, they're in a bottle with a dropper and you pull up that dropper full, that one dropper full is one milliliter, okay? It's approximately 30 drops, give or take, 30 to 45 drops in that one dropper full. So for the sake of today, we're going to say approximately 30 drops. So if we have a 45% alcohol tincture and we are taking one milliliter, you're getting 13 drops of alcohol, which is, so that's less than half of that milliliter, okay? Now, if we're taking a tincture that is 65% alcohol, in that one milliliter, we're now looking at about 19 drops or right at about half of a milliliter, half of that dropper full. Now, you might find a tincture that's actually 95% alcohol, and later on I'll tell you why. And so in that one milliliter, now we're looking at really about 28 and a half drops of alcohol, or almost that full milliliter, okay? Now, let's put this in perspective with some basic foods. So I love to tell people that in your one milliliter of tincture, you're really only getting about what you would get in eating a very ripe banana. So did you know that when you eat a really brown banana, you have alcohol in it? And that's because that that banana is starting to ferment. And so anytime that we have fermentation happening, we get naturally occurring alcohol. And so when we think about these very ripe bananas, this is what we want when we're going to make like banana bread or banana muffins, right? Now, in that one small, very ripe banana, you're getting about 15 drops of alcohol or almost a half a milliliter. So this really equals the same amount of alcohol you would get by taking one milliliter of a 65% alcohol tincture. Now, none of us would bat an eye at eating a brown banana, right? A lot of people prefer the brown bananas because they're much sweeter and never really have thought about the fact that they're getting some naturally occurring alcohol. So when you're taking that 65% alcohol tincture and you're taking one milliliter of it, and we can we kind of put that in perspective with a banana, it doesn't seem so scary, right? So I just encourage us not to get so caught up in that number, that percentage number of the alcohol. Now, naturally occurring in foods also, you're going to get a small amount of alcohol in a large glass of orange juice. You will get a small amount of alcohol in some breads because there's a fermentation process in some breads. And in kombucha, if you like to drink kombucha or kefir, you're going to get a very small amount of alcohol. Kombucha is about 0.5% alcohol. Now let's compare this to alcoholic beverages because I will often have people say, oh my gosh, if I take that tincture that says 65% alcohol, I'm going to get drunk. Well, remember, you're only getting about 19 drops or a half a milliliter in one dose if your dose is a milliliter. Now, if we were to look at a beer, 
A beer by volume is about five to eight percent alcohol. So for illustration purpose today, I'm going to say eight percent. In a 12 ounce can, that equals 0.96 ounces of alcohol. Almost a full ounce, which is almost 29, it's about 29 milliliters. So 0.96 is about 28 milliliters of that beer, of that 12-ounce can. Almost one of the 12 ounces is alcohol. That's a lot more alcohol than if you were to take your dose of your tincture. Now, if we look at wine, which is anywhere between 11 and 14% alcohol, in a six-ounce glass, and let's be honest, who just drinks a six-ounce glass? I love my wine, but my glasses are like eight to 10 ounces. So let's just go with six ounces because that's the standard. And so at 14% alcohol by volume, you're getting 0.84 ounces of alcohol or 25.2 milliliters. So that's also a lot more than you're getting in a dose of a tincture. So you can see when we compare these how although the the alcohol percentage seems so high when we look at a label that tells us it's 40, 45, 65, 75, 95% alcohol, that it really doesn't equate in the way that we think that it does. So you're really still looking at less than one dropperful. Most of the time, half or less of that dropperful actually being alcohol. So it's really not enough to do anything physiologically in the body. You're not going to get drunk from taking one to two droppers full of an alcohol-based extract. Now, again, going back to the beginning, there are times where a person does not want to take an alcohol-based extract, and that would be you have compromised liver function because of some kind of liver disorder, or you're a recovering alcoholic or you have a religious or personal objection, or you're giving this to children, or even to pets, and you're wanting to avoid alcohol because of that. That's completely fine. But if this alcohol ratio um, does not bother you and you know you need to take these plant medicines, then I just want you to feel very safe doing that. Now, there are ways also that you can evaporate off the alcohol or a large amount of that alcohol so that you're getting even less. So if you're herbalist or you're your naturopathic physician wants you to take an alcohol-based tincture and you are concerned about that alcohol, here's what you can do. Before you take your dose, you're going to boil some water on the stove and then you're going to pour that hot water into a glass, a small glass. You don't need a lot. And then take your dose of your tincture that your practitioner recommended, whether they said it was one milliliter or two milliliters, and put that into that hot boiled water and let it sit. That initial steam that's coming up out of that that cup is evaporating off that alcohol. And so once that's cool, you can drink that. Now, I can't guarantee you that it's going to get all the alcohol out, but it will significantly lower the amount of alcohol in that glass of water. 
So you can feel really confident that you're getting a much lower dose. So that's a great way to do it. And I recommend people do that often if they're concerned. So I hope this first part has kind of given you an ability to understand what you're looking at when you see these ratios on um, plant-based product labels, specifically on tinctures, and that it kind of puts your mind at ease a little bit. Now, if you really want to get into um, making herbal medicines, then you want to have an idea of plant constituents and their solubility. So this next part of this episode, I'm going to talk about some chemistry. And so I'm going to go through a really brief summary of some of the major plant constituents and their solubility, the recommended percentage of alcohol to be used when extracting these constituents. And, you know, I'm going to talk about these as single plant constituents, but we also should remember that when plants are put together in a formula, there is some synergy there, and there's synergy within the plant and the hundreds, if not thousands of compounds that are found in those plants. And so we often will look at what we believe is the most active constituent, uh, but there's so many more at play, okay? So let's just start with something called glycosides. Glycosides are compounds that consist of a sugar molecule bound to a non-sugar molecule. And it is the non-sugar molecule that is medicinally active. Most glycosides are soluble in both water and alcohol because a sugar and a non-sugar are bound together, okay? And so sometimes, though, when they, when they split during extraction, um, the non-sugar molecule can precipitate out of the solution. So it separates out. Now, if we want to prevent that, we want to have at least 25% alcohol during extraction. So if you were doing just a water extraction of something that was high in glycosides, you're going to see separation after that extraction happens. After you have steeped that cup of tea, you're going to see precipitation, uh, separation of molecules floating on the top. But if you were to add 25% alcohol to that when you're doing that extraction, that's going to hold those molecules in solution. Okay, so now what kinds of things do we find glycosides in? So there's a lot of different kinds of glycosides. And so I'm going to just throw some terms out there of glycosides. I'll tell you what they're used for and a couple of plants that you might find these types of glycosides in. And so then keeping in mind, if you're going to extract these plants, you want anywhere from 20 to 40% alcohol in your menstruum when you're doing that extraction. So Main glycosides that are found in plants, number one, would be cardiac glycosides. And so cardiac glycosides have heart tonic and kidney stimulant properties. And these can often be quite toxic. And they have a very small safety margin. So these are plants that if you're going to do extraction of these and you're going to use these as tinctures, these are often considered drop-dose tinctures because they do have the potential for toxicity at high doses. So 
Some of these that you would think of would be foxglove, which is digitalis, and lily of the valley, which is convalaria. Another type of glycoside would be a cyanogenic glycoside, and so these are non-sugar molecules that contain cyanide and have antispasmodic and sedative properties. These are found in wild cherry, which is prunus serotina, and linseed. Uh, just a couple examples of, of cyanogenic heterocytes or cyanogenic glycosides. Now you can have sulfur heterocytes, and so this is a non-sugar molecule that contains sulfur and is antibacterial and antifungal. It's also very stimulating to mucous membranes. So when we think of sulfur heterocytes, we think of horseradish and garlic. There's many other sulfur-containing plants, but those are two that we would think of right away. Most people um, have an understanding that these very pungent, aromatic, antibacterial herbs of horseradish and garlic contain sulfur. The next category would be phenolic glycosides, and so these contain phenol in the non-sugar molecule, and that phenol gets liberated soon after we ingest it. And it has antiseptic, anti-inflammatory, and carminative properties. Phenolic glycosides are found in bearberry, which is Arctostaphylus uva ursi. Um, you would also find that if you live in the desert southwest, you will find that in manzanita, which is a relative of uva ursi. Um, and you'll also find it in willow, Salix alba and many others, but those are just a couple of examples of that. Then we have flavonoid glycosides. These are found in all plants and are probably really formed in order to neutralize compounds that can be toxic to the plant. And so these flavonoid glycosides modify the inflammatory response in the body. And so there's a few different flavonoid glycosides that, that we find um, in things like celery, which is APM graviolans. We have flavanols found in elder, Sambucus. And we have flavanones found in rue. We have xanthones found in gentian and St. John's wort. And so again, if these are compounds that we believe help to neutralize toxic compounds within plants, they tend to do the same thing in our body and they um, help to modify or neutralize an inflammatory response. Then we have anthrocenicides. These are glycosides um, of anthracenes, which oxidize in the bowel to anthroquinones. Anthroquinones are laxatives, and they work by stimulating or irritating the bowel. Anthrocenicides are not stable when they're heated. Therefore, when we're doing an it's better if we're going to do an infusion, like make them in a tea rather than a decoction. Um, but we can also then just extract them in alcohol and water. We just don't really want to apply heat to them because they're not stable that way. Now we'll find these anthrocenicides in our laxative herbs, such as cascara, which is Romnus persiana. We'll find it in senna, which is cassia and gustifolia, and we'll find it in turkey rhubarb. 
And then the last one that we'll talk about for glycosides would be what's called saponins. And they're called that because they get soapy. You know, when you crush, say, a root that has a lot of saponins in it, you'll see bubbles like soap. And so glycosides of sapogenin are similar in structure to cortisone, and they have tend to have an anti-inflammatory property and expectorant properties. And just a few saponin-containing plants include wild yam, which is Dioscorea villosa, and ginseng, Panax ginseng. But there's so many more saponin-containing plants. So that was glycosides. And so if you're looking at um, some plant information and it tells you that its main constituent is glycosides, then you're going to want to use anywhere from 25 to 40% alcohol in your water alcohol extraction. Now, if you're making medicines from vodka, vodka typically 80 proof, that means it is 40% alcohol. So all you, and, and then the other amount is water. So that's perfect, right? You have your water and your alcohol together already. You don't have to do any measuring. And so you can just tincture with vodka. That's a great way to do it. Okay. Next plant compound we're going to talk about are alkaloids. Many plants contain alkaloids in the form of alkaloidal salts, and these are generally not soluble in water, and they are soluble in alcohol or glycerin. Some powerful and well-known drugs are alkaloids, so think um, nicotine, morphine, cocaine, and even caffeine is an alkaloid. And so these have a very strong action on the nervous system. And some herbs that contain alkaloids also would be mawang, which is ephedra, cola, and chili, capsicum. Now, if you're going to be extracting something that has a high alkaloid content, now you need anywhere between 45 to 70% alcohol in order to extract the alkaloids and keep those in solution. The next category would be volatile oils. And so volatile oils are the very aromatic chemicals within a plant. And so think about those plants that have a very strong aroma, okay, like lavender or oregano or sage or thyme. That aroma comes from the volatile oils of the plant. These are also the chemicals that we are extracting when we're making an essential oil or we're using an essential oil. These are very, very strong medicinal compounds, these volatile oils. There's many different volatile oils and they all have a range of actions. So it's really difficult to generalize them into specific actions. We can't say volatile oils always do A, B, or C, but um, a lot of volatile oils are antiseptic or carminative or anti-inflammatory. Um, so there's a lot of actions we can categorize them in, but not every volatile oil has the same properties. Now, being an oil... They're only slightly miscible in water. 
I mean, think about water and oil, they don't mix. So if you've ever had an essential oil and you dropped a few drops into a cup of water, it doesn't mix. You'll see it float on the top, right? Water and oil doesn't mix. However, volatile oils are very soluble in alcohol and in glycerin. Now, when we're talking about plants that contain a lot of volatile oils, again, it's those plants that are very aromatic. So your plants, many of your plants in the mint family, the Lamiaceae family, contain a lot of volatile oils. Um, so think about peppermint, thyme, rosemary, lavender, lemon balm. Those are all mint family plants. There's so many more. But if you've been around those plants, you know you can recognize them right away by the way they smell. And we, you know, like I just, I go out to my lemon balm every morning and I have to stick my face right in lemon balm because I just love the smell. We get volatile oils from other plant species, but um, we will most often find them in the mint family. That's the most easily recognizable. Now, if you're wanting to extract something with volatile oils, you again need at least 45% alcohol in order to extract those volatile oils and then keep them in solution. Next category would be tannins. Tannins are compounds of tannic acid. They precipitate proteins and draw tissues together. So that means they have an astringent action. They draw tissue together, they tighten, they dry to a certain degree. Um, if you've ever drank a glass of wine that was heavy in tannins, that was a very dry wine, makes you want to pucker up a little bit, that's that's that tannic acid, okay? Um Plants with high tannin content would be witch hazel. So if you ever grew up using witch hazel on your face after you cleansed your face, you know how tightening and astringent witch hazel is. Um, it could all, We could also be thinking about oak, which is a quercus. Um, and then we have sage, salvia officinalis. Those are all astringent because of their tannic acid uh, compounds. So if you're going to be tincturing a plant that is high in tannins, there's a wide range. You can go anywhere from 25 to 60% alcohol. Um, now, they're also soluble in glycerin. And a lot of times, in order to keep the tannins in solution well, if you're making a tincture, adding anywhere from 5 to 10% glycerin to that tincture um, really gives you a nice extraction. I used to think, you know, glycerin only got added after for flavor because glycerin is sweet, but it really does hold things in solution. So I started experimenting a lot with making my liquid extracts or my tinctures with my alcohol and water, and then just a small amount of glycerin, like five to 8% was what I would use. The next category we're going to talk about are gums. Gums are polysaccharides. That means they're chains of sugar molecules. These are excreted from plants. Um, gums have a tacky texture. And when we add water to gums, we form mucilage. Mucilage is very slimy and it has demulcent and emollient properties. And so when we think of emollients on the skin, we think of lotions, those things that moisturize and soften skin. The word demulcent means the same thing, but on the mucous membrane tissue inside the body, okay? 
So gums often equal mucilage or demulcence. Gums are very soluble in water and in glycerin, and they're not at all soluble in alcohol. Alcohol will often break these down. So when we're doing an extraction of something that is high in gums or mucilage, then a water extraction is going to be best. We can add a little bit of alcohol to that, but we want to keep that between 15 and 25% of that extraction. Now, this, these gums also are really sensitive to heat, and they will precipitate out of solution um, with high alcohol, and they will coagulate with heat. So a if you're doing a tea of something that is very mucilaginous, you want to do that at room temperature and not really, really hot water because that's just going to break down that mucilage. And so when we think of mucilaginous herbs, we think of marshmallow, slippery elm, comfrey. There's several others, but those are kind of your most popular ones that most people recognize. So again, if you're extracting making a tincture of something that has a lot of mucilage or gums, then you want no more than 25% alcohol, 15 to 25% alcohol, lots of water, okay? Last category would be resins. Resins are secreted by a plant also um, as a response to damage or injury. Resins often will form a very glassy substance that you sometimes see on the bark of a tree. And these only dissolve in very high concentrations of alcohol or melt when they're heated. And so you'll see resin medicine a lot for antibacterial preparations. You'll see resinous plants in a lot of salves for wound care. Um, so think like your pine pitch resins. Um, and so resins need high alcohol. They need 95% alcohol to be extracted. Anything less than that, you're really not getting the amount of resins that you need out of that plant. And so some things that contain a lot of resins are um, calendula. If you've ever felt fresh calendula flowers, they're very, very sticky. That's the resin. Um, myrrh is a resin from Comifora mal mal. And then, like I said, you can get resin from your pines, your junipers. Um, in the desert, we have resin that you can get from the brittle bush plant. And so um, think 95% alcohol for those. So there's a lot of chemistry in this last, set, last section. But I just want to... Um, reiterate again the basic safety of alcohol extracts. Um, going back to the beginning where I did the comparison between the ratios of alcohol in tinctures versus common foods and beverages. So I hope that this gave you an understanding as to why alcohol is in a tincture, what we're trying to get out of that plant when we use different ratios of alcohol and that taking alcohol-based extracts is typically very safe. Now, keep in mind, this is not meant to be exact medical advice. If your healthcare practitioner has given you a direction 
to use or not to use alcohol-based tinctures, always, always, always follow the direction of your healthcare provider. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that you learned something today and that you feel like you have a bit more of understanding about alcohol-based tinctures used in herbal medicine. Thank you so much for joining today and be sure to subscribe to this channel here on podbean.com or subscribe on um, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Google Play. And I look forward to seeing you back here again in another episode of Herbal Wisdom. If you are interested in learning some medicine making or learning more about plant medicine, I encourage you to go to herbalwisdominstitute.com, click on classes, and you can see what classes we have coming up in the near future. Some online classes and some in-person classes. Thank you so much for being here. See you again. Bye-bye.